Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well, actually, Ryan. How are you doing? I am doing... Uh, confused. Uh, yeah, I just watched a movie that left me scratching my head a little bit at points, and I'm I'm also excited. Very excited. I'm, I'm excited as former salesman Big Kev of Australia fame, not Australia film, just the country, would have said, I'm excited, Bartek, but first, could you run us down what our podcast is for those who are new, and to remind those, to to reinforce to those old timers that have been with us before. Yes, for, for all those who are listening to this and going, what is this? <laughs> the answer to that is, you are listening to Spit and Polished no, that's the, that's the email. Spit and Polish presents Pictures mm. Powwow. Spit and Polish presents being the whole shebang of the show. Pictures mm. Powwow being the specific show you are listening to right now. Wow, you had to take a breath, a big breath to get it through. And we're called Spit and Polish. Likingly, because we're always spitting, we are both Polish. Hence our names, Ryan and Bartek. Very Polish names. Everybody knows those names. They're extremely Polish. And uh, this is our show in which we talk about movies that have come recommended. We call it Pictures Powwow. And uh, Bartek recommended the movie of discussion for this week. Uh, Bartek, could you walk us through what you recommended? Yes. Uh, why was it that I recommended it? Yeah. Because it's your, we do... It's your turn. Yes, it's my turn. We do a three-week cycle where in the first week it's my turn. Mm-hmm. Then next week it's Ryan's turn, so he will recommend something at the end of this episode. And then we do the listening people's recommendation. And then after that, we start all over again. Yeah, we just do the same three films over and over again Mm -hmm. until somebody tells us to stop. Yes, but I try to break up the formula a little bit by every second decision I make Mm -hmm. um, in my entire day-to-day life is I pick a non-Hollywood film. So that is what this week is. I have picked the Japanese anime film Paprika from 2006. Paprika, 2006, by who Who did this one? The director of the film is Satoshi Kon, who mm. he made four films. We've done two of them so far. This is going to be our third. And this was the final film that he directed. Yes. Uh, so we've done uh, Tokyo Godfather's Perfect Blue and now this. That's the order we did them, not the order they came out in. Yes, we completely mixed it up. And in uh, my own spare time, and uh, I've seen Millennium Actress, and maybe one day we'll still do that one on the pod, just kind of round yeah. it off. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have seen all of his films, all of his material, right? You've seen his anime show all that of, he made. Yeah, and... all of the stuff he directed. Yeah, I know yeah. that he's done like you know storyboarding and stuff and mm. animation work and other things, but these are the directed things that he did. Yeah, and uh, I've now seen all of his movies, uh, thanks in part to doing this podcast. And like I said, I just checked out Millennium Actress at some point because I was interested in the pitch of that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we are, Paprika. If people have, if you have not seen the movie before, we recommend that you do because we will get into the details and spoil it all. And it is a film that one should experience. It's one of those movies where mm. you should experience it. It's it's going to be we. I don't think it would be as satisfying to hear us kind of talk about it if you don't if you haven't at least seen it. I, I don't know. It's one of those where if somebody talked to me about Paprika before I saw Paprika, I don't know if it would make me interested or if it would be a... It's no substitution for just yeah, sitting down the, and seeing it. It's like saying, 
listen to a, a review of Akira before watching Akira. It's like, uh, you just watch Akira and get your, your own satisfaction yeah, out of it. I have mixed thoughts on that, but definitely there are elements of this film good to walk in blind for. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of the big points that I have about this film is when I watch this film, uh, you know, it wasn't my favourite of the films that he did, but boy, is it a visual affair. Mm-hmm. This is a film that, you know, when I kept saying to myself, like, oh, I want to watch it again, see if I appreciate it a bit more. But also there was that thing of, like, I want to look at it again. That's very fair. So, yeah, let's walk through our histories with this. I don't have one. I've never really heard of the movie until you brought it to my attention when you first uh, viewed it. I didn't really know much about it. You gave me a brief little rundown of its plot, and over the time since then, I've kind of heard it be brought up over and over again in the uh, catalogue of movies that, hey, did you know that this big movie that people know stole or ripped off or inspired by this movie you haven't heard of? And that was the case with Inception, Mm -hmm. I've heard, where many people, and even has it in the trivia, on IMDb, Christopher Nolan's inspiration for Inception uh, because it's dreamscape reality, dreams within dreams, and all entering of that. dreams, things like that. Yeah, with technology and uh, the means to do so. And uh, yes, and there are some visual iconography in here that you kind of see in uh, Inception. The hallway specifically is very reminiscent in Inception. There's a whole bit in it, like a hotel hallway with the falling down and everything. But, uh, I did not really know too much about it other than it was going inside people's dreams. And I did have a little bit of a a, a dread going into it because I'm not a fan of Inception. And I'm not like, and that shouldn't matter, but it did in a little way because I was worried walking in how much of this movie is going to be. Hey, Ryan, do do, do you think any of it was real? Mm. That type of affair. And I find that to be. Good as I, I don't mind that kind of film and talk, but I also just I, I just wanted to watch. Give a, me something a bit more straightforward. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. And so I was a bit worried about that because also Perfect Blue was a really great movie as well, but there was that element to it at the end. It was like, oh, do you think she's really there? You know, or crazy? You know, all that kind of stuff. And obviously, there's elements to that in this movie. The movie plays around with that. Are we in a dream still? Are we? Uh, all of that. Uh, we're still inside. And uh, <laughs> and so I was a little bit dreading of that, but having seen the other filmmakers' works and being really left off on a positive note with Perfect Blue being the previous one I had watched, I was also very much excited because this is a very popular film out of this guy's catalogue. It was this and Perfect Blue were always kind of the ones that I understood to be the big ones. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of been my run with it. I watched it last night in preparation for this podcast. I I have the Blu-ray of it. It was on sale and I thought, yeah, why not? Let's give it a go. Uh, I'll watch it for the pod at some point. Uh, so what about you? What's your history? Um, so I might've briefly touched on this in our uh, Tokyo Godfathers episode and maybe even Perfect Blue, but just to say it again, um, a few years ago, it was 2019, we took a long break for pretty much end of September, all of October, mm-hmm. um, and then we came back with The Shining. And during that month, I was uh, recovering from a surgery, you were doing you know, wedding stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so during that time, I had a bunch of uh, restrictions and guidelines for what I could be doing. Um, you know, I could walk around, I could sit and stuff like that, but my sitting was meant to be heavily restricted. And even today, like, still, I try to restrict it. But back then, it was like, you know, 
sit very briefly and then, you know, either go walk or lie down. Um, and so with walking, you obviously get tired after doing a little bit of it. So I spent a lot of time lying down and that meant, you know, playing whatever games that I could from bed and also watching things. So during that time, um, obviously I'm an anime fan. I haven't, in recent years, haven't been watching too much of it. But during that time, I was catching up on a bunch of things. And eventually I came across a Paranoia Agent, the anime fil- uh, series that Satoshi Kon directed. Mm. Um, I watched that thinking like, oh, yeah, I've seen this guy's film Tokyo Godfathers. This should be interesting, a bit more abstract. And that got me on this kind of role of watching a bunch of more abstract things. And pretty much immediately after finishing Paranoia Agent, I watched it all basically in one run. I watched, I know I watched Perfect Blue immediately, and I think over the next few days I went through his other films, uh, Millennium Actress and uh, Paprika. Mm. Uh, so I had this whole basically catching up on everything Satoshi Kon made other than Tokyo Godfathers in a short period of time. And they were all v- enjoyable in very different ways. They all mm. did very different things. Um, but also with per- Paprika being his last thing that he did, you could see little elements of all the other things, like mm-hmm. kind of being repeated in this, done a little bit differently. Motifs. Motifs. Yep. Imagery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was even thinking about it when I was watching it again uh, this morning, and I haven't f- quite found a link for Tokyo Godfathers into this film, maybe some sort of magical realism thing, but I could point out little elements of all the other three things, you know, in this film. He, Yes. When I watched this, I was reflecting back on all the other films, and it really made me think about how different Tokyo Godfathers is, because Tokyo mm. Godfathers is it's a the middle pretty thing, yeah. straightforward film. Mm. It It's funny. Overt, it's, a, it's a comedy Christmas movie, yeah, and it has its flair and flourishes, of course, but it's not abstract in the way the other ones are. Yeah, again, it's just like a series of highly unlikely coincidences help the characters through their way. And flashbacks to tell us how these characters became who they are today. Mm -hmm. The connecting thing I would say throughout all of his movies is there's always a character at least that is an artist or a performer or some entertainer of some sort in all Mm -hmm. of them. Because... The, the trans- that is, yeah, that's also true of Paranoid Agent. Yeah. yeah, the trans character, right, in uh, in Tokyo Godfathers, they were yep. a performer and all of that. And so that's kind of one of the more obvious recurring things. And in this movie, they're all kind of performers because they're specifically our lead, who is Paprika, mm. where she has this character that she plays in the dreamscape, but also then the cop man himself, where he was a former filmmaker and now he's having to act out his film at the end. Mm. So there's that kind of thing in there in his work. But I was also reflecting back on all those other ones. But yeah, that's an interesting history. You watch these in a in a pretty short period of time. Yeah, Tokyo Godfathers was a few years earlier, yeah. but you know, the all the uh, abstract ones basically yeah. short period. The rest of, time. of his catalogue you watched in a series of days. Yeah. Which is very different because obviously I've watched these over a series of years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> now and uh yeah, um, paprika. So here's my blanket thing that I'll say. It's not my favorite mm-hmm. of his. I would put it at equals with Millennium Actress. I was similar. Uh the big issue that I have with the movie, and this, it's still not saying oh this movie should because of this, but. What I liked about Perfect Blue better, and even Millennium Actress better, is uh, 
I cared more about the character involved in those films. Mm-hmm. In Paprika, it's about the concept and the set pieces more for me and what it gives me cerebrally. But character-wise, I didn't find it as uh, as layered or as nuanced or as gripping to me as the other films. That's where its weakness is for me in, ca- in comparison to the other three films we've done of his. But it's still marvelously put together. It's really creative and thoughtful and bizarre. We have to praise how bizarre it is. And But at the end of it, I didn't care as much about the characters as I did in Perfect Blue, mm. Tokyo Godfathers, and, and Millennium Actress, where I put it equal to Millennium Actress, but, but Millennium Actress outdoes it in the character thing because that's about the character, is about the woman that we're... So, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this 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 film kind of balances out the main characterish focus attention between a mm. few people. I would say it's not as if this isn't putting in any effort character work wise, but this felt more to me of the characters were in service of the story rather than the story in service of the characters, which is what I felt with the other films of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, thus far, at least you know, when I rewatched this, and I will want to rewatch this, it may feel different because obviously. This is my first time seeing it. I don't know all the twists and turns and I don't know all the answers and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going off of like the base level of seeing it and going, what the fuck was that? And I, oh, I understand what's going on, I think, in these ways. And so, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. Uh, I did have a good time overall. And uh, yeah, it was it just kept ramping the things up in a really brilliant way. And why I also put it equal with Millennium Actress is um, this doesn't have... My big weakness with his other films, except for Perfect Blue, is the comedy aspect. I'm not a huge fan of the comedy in his movies mm-hmm. as much. I kind of that's why, like Perfect Blue, it wasn't re- it didn't really have any comedy stuff. Millennium Actress has these stupid comedy characters in there that kind of get in the oh, way. Like, yeah, the the cameraman, mm-hmm. the director. And that's not my. It's just not my feel. And uh, I like it when he strips back. And this movie doesn't have any stupid comedy stuff in there really either. Mm. And so it evens out to being equal to being second or third favorite in his catalog that i've seen <laughs> it's weird tokyo godfathers is my least favorite but uh it's the one i started out on so it has a he has a special place in the heart i guess mm. uh so what about you what was it like revisiting uh yeah i have talked about in vague terms paprika in the past where it was um yeah, this is a sci-fi film and there's mm. obviously big sci-fi concepts here that they introduce and, you know, my kind of experience with sci-fi is sometimes I kind of struggle to uh, retain all the information given. I have to kind of play catch up when, mm. you know, as the film keeps going. So I was fine that first time, but that did kind of bother me. Uh, it was nice revisiting it, knowing, you know, generally where everything goes. Like, mm. I didn't remember all the concepts, but as soon as I heard like DC Mini, I'm like, oh, <sighs> I remember becoming very familiar with this term a few years ago. DC Mini. It's like I'm... Um, Back in 2019, I'm, I'm watching it in the same bed, so that's something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot easier to follow. Um, and also, because I knew where some of the characters end up, it was a bit easier to follow along their character journey and recognise, you know, what what was happening in each scene that they were in. Yeah. Yeah. But that being said, I still didn't remember the entirety of the cops' uh, story, so that was actually really nice to... Uh, re-experience semi-fresh. Mm. Like, I, di- I didn't remember the whole backstory with his friend or the film that he made, and it was really nice. 
See, that's going to be the thing I, that will linger with me from the movie. It's going to from now on. Um, yeah. I found that really well done because we start the movie with him. And he comes in and out of the story and he's he's missing from an, a lot, for large stretches of the movie to the point in which when he returns again, you're going, oh, oh you're going to matter to this somehow. Oh, I can't wait to figure out what that is. And mm. instead of it being this uh, elaborate series of uh, reveals or whatever, which of course there are, it is more of an emotional payoff for me. I felt emotions on behalf of his character. Uh, that's why he's probably... One of my favorite aspects of the movie, again, it's the character work there I really like, and I and I wish there was kind of more of it there, but um, deliberately he is withheld from us for large portions of the movie, and it was super effective for him, but again, that's fine if he was like if he was just one of the character things in the movie that was like a secondary, um, but uh, he was because it was the most meat for me with uh, that that side of storytelling it's what i'm going to linger with after we're talking about this and mm. the ending is also it ends with him yeah the the last line he has with like the reflection of his friend like that was really nice yeah and uh yeah him going to the movies and and, and in terms of the uh you know self-reflection on satoshi khan's other works mm -hmm. this character really brings a lot of the millennium actress vibes oh of course yeah yes yes of course uh but i uh the sci-fi aspect you bring that up and it's 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 very interesting to me because it is there of course they've got this gadget that goes into the brains but i look at this more as a david lynch type of affair where it's this magical surrealism dreamscape world where mm. i almost forget that there's a sci-fi aspect to the movie where if we break it down to its basics and this is my interpretation if we break it down to its basics there's an old man who can't walk and he would really like to walk again. So he uses this evil, he uses this scary dream technology to try to rule the world and get his body to the supreme being and he becomes the devil. Mm -hmm. And they have to stop him. On a sci-fi level, that's, you know, and basic story, that's how you do it. But again, I point to something like a Lynch or something like a Fellini, or those kind of filmmakers who could take that kind of stuff and just spread it out and make it more abstract and more thematic. And the genre trappings almost break down to a level. And for me, I would not... Yes, it's science fiction, but I'm not going to think of this as a science fiction movie. I'm not going to think of this as a Satoshi Kon's science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's just as abstractly told as Millennium Actress and Perfect Blue with these weird mirroring effects and overlays and jumping around and dreamlike visuals. And so that's where I come at it when it when we talk about it from a genre specific angle. And uh, what do you think about that? Are you still hung up on this being a little bit too much of your sci-fi affair? Is that still that little bit of a barrier for you on this rewatch, or what do you think? Um, I, I still do kind of think of it as a sci-fi film, but it's it's not really a barrier for me anymore. You know, mm. it's just basically understanding, like, you know, what everything means, because I could definitely see someone watching this film who, uh, you know, might not know too much about, you know, psychology or mm. not be too familiar with abstract films or anything like that, and thinking that, like, oh, every single big visual thing that happens is just an excuse to do that thing, which, 
to be fair, there is that to some extent. Like, uh, you know, you wanting to do the little Tarzan scene, jumping to a mm-hmm. spy film, and then just putting a bunch of all these random disparate elements into the big parade that you see throughout the film. Yeah. There is an element of like, oh, yeah, I could definitely see someone wanting to, you know, justify a way to do something like this. Um, but still wanting to, you know, have it make sense in some way. And an easy way to do that would be to have it be a dream, because dreams are, they even talk about REM sleep a few times in mm-hmm. the film. They are, they don't have to make sense because it usually is just a, you know, random jumbling of stimuli that you've experienced. And there's a lot of lines of dialogue in the dreams where, mm. where the characters are crazy. They say a line that is just complete nonsense. Yeah, the film throws you off when uh, the the her her boss, the little guy with glasses, when he before he throws himself out the window, he just starts speaking this utter nonsense. And I'm sitting there going, "What is happening?" Mm. Because he's giving the animation and the performance is just as over the top as the character was already presented to be. Mm. But then he was just, he just kept talking about stuff and I'm like, what is going on? And that is one of those, I have to wait for the story to tell me so I can understand and reflect back on it. And then obviously we see that be done more and more. So about the movie throughout the movie, that, that side effect that, 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 that this dream technology is putting on people that, that, that the terrorism, oh boy, the terrorism got brought up a lot in this. I really remember. Big T word. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, what a time it was to really use that word. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It was the mid 2000s. It was the mid 2000s. And so, yeah, talking about uh, the visual flair, because that's something that you brought up. You were really excited to see the visuals of the movie. I, I completely agree. I thought the visuals of this, were gorgeous very expressive very exaggerated and striking memorable i i thought it was really well done there's like a couple of shots due to it being the time period it is where it's playing around with 3d like the shot where Mm. she opens up the 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 cupboard and then the camera kind of pans over and then ducks down to look down the stairwell or this ladder that goes down and it was a little bit uh video game cutscene in mm. that moment but outside of some cgi usage or 3d usage animation here just kind of standing out there's plenty that don't stand out as well that there's plenty of use of cg and 3d animation within this that just don't strike me or catch my eye and that's just a testament to it as well i love the color palette in his movies Mm -hmm. very vibrant but with a real use real nice use of shadow and shading uh so that it doesn't feel as if you're just watching a cutesy kidsy cartoon it is that it's a bright popping vibrant color but the texture of it and the shading and shadowing still gives you that you're watching something that isn't for children. This is for adults. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember way back when we were doing uh, Tokyo Godfathers, I brought up that in his films, you know, as much as he is making anime films, his character designs really try to be a bit more faithful to what people actually look like You know, that mm. are from Japan rather than just the typical Disney-inspired stuff. Yes, yes. Although we did get the really fat guy in this movie who felt like an anime character from every anime <laughs> I've ever seen ever. The big baby man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that character. What an interesting what an interesting character that was. Uh but yeah, I love the animation in his movies. They're, they're, and 
having now watched them, they they got better as it went along. Like we did Perfect Blue last, and there was some of the budget and the times with the animation that was it's not as good looking as Paprika, but it's still mm. a very good looking movie. Yeah. But uh, this movie is very specific and very detailed. I mentioned in in uh, Perfect Blue there was some there's some of that typical anime we saw this in Wolf Children, for instance, and this may be just a thing of japan or budget but we're just in the background people don't have faces it's just like blank and i find yeah. that distracting sometimes <laughs> but this movie there's there's not really any of that everyone has a face everything has this real amount of effort put into it and i love with japanese animation uh, i think about this a lot because when you watch American Western animation, they don't have this as well as your Ghibli's or these or anything where I'm watching this scene in this movie. I can't even remember what scene it is, but it's just a shot of a car park and a car's parking in the car park. And I, and I look at it and go, God, all of these cars are so well colored. Mm. They've got such, such amount of like they really oh, this car's green and it's multiple textures of green and there's a shot of this of the lady waiting for the elevator and you can kind of see in the marble uh brick uh, the marble wall there the the reflections of the fluorescent lights that are clearly above that we aren't seeing and there's just i really love in in some japanese animation that they go like super stylized and but also can be super realistic as well what mm. do you think about all that no that's that's definitely one of the satoshi Kon's strengths just making things look you know not just the characters but the environment it's like not everything is you know just a flat color with a bit of shading there are you know little details in like reflections mm. um and, and there is a real art to you know making something super detailed and you know with the right looking colors but not making it stand out it's not like in whatever scene that was that, that yeah. it happened in it's not like you were just staring at that car and completely disengaged from the story like yeah. it really felt natural that it was there i find with the um, specifically japanese animation they're really good with landscapes and backgrounds and stuff as well uh, I think of if I'm going to have a, a desktop background on my computer from an animation, I would choose a background from an anime, whether it be movie or TV show. I, I've said this to you before, but I grew up with Dragon Ball Z mm -hmm. growing up, as many kids of our generation did. Yep. And one of the things I really love about that when the animation's good, because... <laughs> Because Dragon Ball Z is one of those shows where they had like three different animation houses yeah, for, to pump out. And for, like, for the long runners, you're going to have the weak ones. You're going to have the ones where they have eggs for heads. <laughs> you know about that, right? Uh, probably. Where where Dragon Ball Z, I think it was where they had they had to pump out like one a week. So they would have three different animation houses doing it. Mm. You So the good one, the middle one, and the shit one. And the shit one, the, their heads look like eggs. So <laughs> you knew you were in for a bad episode, but... Dragon Ball Z, for instance, and even Pokemon and, and Ghibli movies, I just love how they do grass and dirt and, and and physical environments. I always think of Dragon Ball Z where they have like these floating islands and bits of debris that would fly up, and the mm. and the ab both it's it feels realistic but also surreal because the color will be this sickly looking pink or this green. Yeah, green. Or, There's a lot of green backgrounds and, in Dragon and, Ball. 
I was thinking about that when I was watching this, where it's riding that fine balance and it works for the movie, where the movie is is dealing with dreams, where everything is obviously different and abstract, but it's also grounding us back to the real world with, with like, I keep saying it, like hyper-specific detailing to things, such as I at the end when she has to, when Paprika jumps into the, the robot guy and then becomes a big baby and then becomes a full-grown girl and all that, I was looking at the road and, and I was looking at the cracks in the ground and, and the broken debris on the everywhere and I was like, that looks great. Mm. I was just noticing that type of stuff when it comes to the animation because obviously we're going to talk about like, don't you love it when this person's skin does a Cronenbergian thing and a head will pop out of it and melt? That, oh, that's great, of course. But I really was looking at this, appreciating the the the, the mundane, mm. the backgrounds, the clothes, even the hair. Uh, all of that stuff was really marvelous to me in the film and, and the color, textures, the weight. Oh, I love how they played around with weight in this movie. The feeling of how light and fluffy and airy it is when you're in the dream world, but then when they're in the real world, there's this real f- sense of everything mm. just weighs down so much more. Yeah, really I remember. Well done. I remember because one of the big things about the film that we haven't brought up yet is the the main character is mm. uh, you know this Doctor Chiba character, mm-hmm. and when she's in the dream world, she is Paprika, the red haired girl that you see in all the marketing, and they're like two sides of the same person. What the where Paprika, the dream one, is really bubbly. And then the the opening credit sequence of the film is basically her just going around the city through screens and things like that, and mm-hmm. she does the the skipping thing, yeah, yeah. which was you know call back to Perfect Blue, the mm-hmm. climax of that where the villain was chasing the main character, yeah, and she was like this you know fat sweaty breathing deeply lady but then like in her reflections she was yeah. doing the skipping thing, yeah, and the opening with that really used it being animation mm. her jumping through through tvs or appearing on as a picture on a person's shirt and then we zoom into the shirt and now we're in that location and uh her skipping and freezing time or it's just jittery like an old videotape when you're used yeah, to she, put it on pause she's pretending she's struggling in the middle of traffic but now just pause the time <laughs> yeah uh yeah that was that was an awesome sequence yeah. uh that I love just the opening with the clown coming out of the car. Mm. This is a very elaborate thing. And I knew I was in for a good time when uh, the cop guy saw an entire crowd of people run at him with his own face on them, no matter the, <laughs> the proportions. And I laughed. <laughs> proportions or gender. I had a good laugh. Especially because that young lady with his face like ran right into the camera and it was just like, oh, this your skin texture of the face is different from your body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I loved when he looked at the dream back. He's like, why do they have my face? It's so weird. And I nodded going, it is weird. Yeah. That guy's voice, uh, we have heard it in Tokyo Godfathers. He was in exactly one scene. Oh. He was the doctor at the hospital who the main, uh, well, one of the three homeless people's daughter was getting married to. Uh, it's, uh, famous voice actor Akio Otsuka. He is notably the Japanese solid snake. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. And did he get to be in number five? He was a snake the whole way through. Oh, unlike, unlike David Hayden. Unlike David Hayden. Yeah, they respect voice actors in Japan. Oh, wow. And notably, this is a spoiler for the end of Metal Gear Solid uh, 4. The very end of that game. Sons of Liberty? 
uh, Guns of the Patriots. Guns of the Patriots. Sons of Liberty is the second one. So yeah, uh, there's a scene between Solid Snake and his father, Big Boss, and Big Boss in that scene is voiced by his father, who is also a famous voice actor. Oh, so in that series, Big Boss is actually voiced by a different person. If for that scene, oh, okay. Otherwise, it's you know the same guy, Akio Otsuka. Interesting. Uh, any other voice acting people you want to bring up like that, or is um, that the main person here? Uh, there are a couple more I could bring up. Uh, the main character, Chiba and Paprika, mm-hmm. we have heard her before, but I forgot about this until I looked it up. Mm-hmm. She was actually in Wolf Children. Oh. Do you remember the? It wasn't really love interest, but the daughter's like friend that she made that like she struck. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And how she had the mother that was like, "Your son struck my daughter." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was her. Oh. That's Megumi Hayashibara. She's actually, I think, the most famous voice actor, voice actress from the nineties. Oh, okay. So she was, uh, she's still like the Japanese Jessie from Pokemon. <sighs> um, she's the blue haired girl from Evangelion. So, and these are both roles that like she's still doing because again, oh, wow. Japan likes voice actors. <laughs> wow, and she wasn't in Perfect Blue, huh? No, I'm no, surprised. I'm surprised. No. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. Um, anything in specifics you want to talk about with this? Anything you want to ask me or talk about or dissect or bring up? Um, you sort of jumped in there with the mention of David Lynch. One of the things that I was thinking was, you know, this is a film that deals with dreams, and notably, we did uh, Mulholland Drive, which also yes. dealt with dreams. Um, and in that film, you know, I like that film a bit more, and I really gravitate towards a lot of the dreamlike elements there mm. um and you not so much and even in our regular day-to-day lives like i remember my dreams a bit more talk about them a bit more mm. try to work out like oh i think this was inspired by this and you notably you know don't remember your dreams i don't remember my dreams and you tend to think of it as a bit more of like a free formy thing mm-hmm. uh, that's probably not the best phrasing but was there anything any thoughts like that lingering when you were watching the film <sighs> that's a great question because sometimes that dreamy shit does pull me out of a movie. Yeah. Uh, I think it had enough of a coherent story for me to get it. Mulholland Drive has a story. I get it. I get what it's doing. Um, how do I say this without being offensive to David Lynch? Because I do like <laughs> David Lynch. But um, this film was less wanky, is the description I would use. It was less Definitely. A, a wank fest uh, in comparison to Mulholland Drive. I'm sorry, people. I don't love Mulholland <laughs> Drive. I love Twin Peaks. I love Lost <laughs> Highway for some reason. Uh, Elverman and uh, Ray said, yeah, there was just, uh, I guess I got more out of this movie, even though it had like creepy, weird dream shit that was in part there to tell a story, also in part because these are things that the creatives involved probably wanted to play around with. Yep, I said that earlier, especially as well. <laughs> in animation form. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, the, the building mystery and suspense of what was going on was also the hook. It had a clear three-act structure. There was a definite, uh, we're finding the clues, we think this person's involved, we think they're going to be using it for this. There was the re- revelations and ramping of stakes and all of that. So that stuff was enough to push me through. And the surreal, dreamy stuff was in aid of that. So... When we had the creepy parade, and although it's crazy and nonsense, that's what it's supposed to be. It's crazy nonsense. It's the dreams of a madman type of deal. Help us. Floop is a madman. Help us save us, as uh, Spy Kids bravely said. And I understood when they would cut back to that and they would show us the effects of that in the real world, it made sense to me why these were here. Um, (laughs) Well, David Lynch's stuff, don't get me wrong. I know, I get it. It's just I didn't connect with it. Also, this movie's ninety 
minutes long. Yeah, I think on the dot even. And uh, Mulholland Drive isn't. <laughs> so Was that one two hours? Length. It felt like Yeah, it, yeah. length is definitely something that helps me with these things as well. This didn't uh, dick me about as long. And uh, yeah, so I didn't get a... Uh, uh, I was surprised. I wasn't as off-put by that. Rachel, my wife, was. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she said to me, I, I think I understood some of it and just was frustrated by the movie. Mm. My brother-in-law... Oh yes, you. Said I, something I about told this. him that we were going to do this one day on the pod. I had it, and he he reacted very strongly. He said paprika. Oh boy, and I'm like, oh, what's wrong with paprika? And I actually said, what's wrong with paprika? Isn't that like a really beloved movie, anime movie? And he just then he sat back and stroked his chin and said, it is, I guess. Yeah, you know, you got a point there. And then. He started to tell me, without actually saying anything, that he didn't like Paprika. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, he's like, am I thinking about the right movie? I'm like, oh, so they go inside people's dreams? He's like, yeah, yeah. And then he just kind of, in a roundabout way of saying it, said, it basically said it was a movie that pissed him off. Mm-hmm. And he would be surprised if it didn't piss me off. But he would love to hear my thoughts on the movie. Richard, if you're here, hello. I'm talking about the movie now. <laughs> and it didn't piss me off. I, I I had a good time. I enjoyed myself. But yeah, there was this air of paprika. Ooh. And <laughs> so I felt like, am I entering some kind of weird thing right now? And it was weird. Yeah. Paprika's weird. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um. One of the main drawbacks for me was our main character. Both sides, Paprika and uh, what was her actual name again? Uh, Atsuko Chiba. I just didn't really care about either side. Uh, They were in the movie, but I also kind of wish they were in the movie more, if you know what I'm saying. I think I got the same impression, yeah. I Yeah, and then the revelation that she's in love, or has feelings at least, for the fat guy scientist man. I was like, oh... Okay, uh, I guess. As as my second viewing, I was looking out for more signs of that, and yeah, it's still a bit contrived, I guess yeah, you could say. <laughs> you, you didn't get sold on it? Uh, in very minor ways, like I guess there were things there, but it did seem a bit more like a, you know, talking down to like, oh, you are irresponsible, mm-hmm. you know, you, you didn't think about the consequences of these actions, your your personality leading to this. It it did seem a bit more like partnery in the sense of like we work together rather than romantically. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I was watching the movie, and I, I think I say we're like an hour in, and I said in my brain, and it's almost as if the movie heard me and said, "Oh, we got you sorted." I said, "Ah." Oh. This is his least pervy movie I've seen thus far. It's the least pervy. Yeah, least mm-hmm. pervy movie. And then, then we had the scene in which the guy put his hand through her pussy and then up her body, mm. and it was like, oh, here we go. And then they split her in half, and she's just naked. And then it just went on and on. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> this is the least pervy. Oh wait, no, there we. Are. Oh, there we are. <laughs> It was just one of those. It was just very mm. funny to me because it was, it was withheld. I guess Tokyo Godfather's is his least pervy movie thus far, huh? Mm, yeah, That's yeah. the one where it's just like, okay. <laughs> it was just very funny to me that I thought that, and then the movie immediately followed it up with, no, 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 we've got the rapist guy here <laughs> who mm. tries to do the right thing in the end, but it doesn't matter because he, he was just he was just a guy. He was voiced by Spike Spiegel. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I wonder if he... Okay, 
do you ever wish, or uh, because you watch more anime anime than me, when you know when you say, "Oh, that's Spike Spiegel," do you, like obviously people who speak Japanese would know this better, but like to me, I'd be like, "Oh, I'll take your word for it," but like. When he does the voice in this, does he does he sound different to Spike Spiegel? Oh, for in terms of me saying like, oh, he was voiced by Spike Spiegel. This was one of the ones where I when I looked it up afterwards, I'm like, oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, like most of the other ones I did. This one was like, oh, that surprised me. I didn't hear it at all. Because I'd love it if he sounded like <laughs> Spike Spiegel. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> While also being like, I got my hand in you. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I did really like that um, that sequence though. It was really oh, sim- it was marvelous. Very symbolic because like before that happens, like he's stroking her on like the surface of her skin and she's having mm-hmm. like no reaction. Mm-hmm. But then you know when it presses in and he's under the skin, that's where mm-hmm. like she is reacting. Then he, you know, she gets cut open and it's the chiba inside of her. Yeah, and it's like oh yes, this makes sense why. Mm-hmm. It almost goes without saying that if you put your hand inside someone, it's more. Hurdy? Hurdy or graphic than on the surface, but symbolically it also makes a bit more sense. Yeah. Because it's not, she, he's not groping paprika, he's pro- groping mm. the real one inside. I've noticed in all of his films, and I can't speak for Paranoia Agent, but uh, he has those running themes, motifs, ideas, images. In the films, except for Tokyo Godfather, unless I'm mistaken, mm-hmm. violence, sexual violence and violence against women is a recurring thing in all of them. Millennium Actress definitely has some of that in there. Uh, Perfect Blue definitely does. I mean, we have the whole simulated sex scene that she has to act out, and it's this nightmare, this nightmare. Sex is a nice word to use for that. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> do I have to say what it was? The R scene? Yes, the, the, but it was her character. Yeah, yeah, it, right? was, it, but, was, it was a film that she was doing. But it but, was... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then this is also... A sexual assault scene in yeah. in a far more and that's a very interesting thing that's a in his movies is he for the most part have females as the leading characters and they get violated or exploited or defiled by by men or even other women and not in that sense but like in perfect blue the, the other woman that's kind of after her, whether it's all real, whatever, whatever. But like, yeah, that's a that's a thing. And what do you think about all of that? I mean, and do you want to touch upon that? I mean, you've also seen Paranoia Age. I don't know if that fact is into that show at all. I don't know anything about that show. Then it's weird. I'll say that it is definitely the most weird and the most abstract of his stuff. But based on some things that you've said so far in this episode, I think you'll get a. I think mm. you'll get a lot out of it. I think mm. you'll like it. Um. Yeah, definitely there there is that underlying thing going on. I I can't remember in Tokyo Godfathers there might have been some stuff like that with the trans woman because like she yeah. did work in the bar and I remember like maybe she got harassed a bit. Yeah. Um yeah, I can't remember too. That was more much. just about beating up the homeless. Well, there, there, there was a scene where, you know, there were homeless hunters like beating up the yeah. gin character, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think about that being something that has been uh, in the movie, in his movies, that commentary about uh, women and gender and the the inequality and the brutalization there? Um, what do I think about it? Uh... Yeah, because it's a recurring thing in them. Mm, yeah, I hadn't thought about that until now, but. Again, also Millennium Actress, I don't remember too much about in that one. Yeah, it's not um, as graphic in that. It's more just the industry beat her down. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I guess I've only really got Perfect Blue and Paprika fresh on the mind in terms of that. Mm. Um, but if it's been present the whole way through, then yeah, it's definitely something that he saw value in. And I remember, similar to Perfect Blue, there's that trivia point of like, both of these two films are based on a book that isn't really well known, and now mm. you know the films eclipse them. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to point out that we already mentioned Satoshi Kon plays a character in this film. Yeah, we mentioned T- that before yeah. we recorded. Yeah, yeah. To- oh, if it was before, yeah, he plays. There, there are two characters in this film that work in this like virtual bar that mm. the cop uh, goes to, and Paprika has like a little meeting room in. Um, the tall, lanky one is voiced by Satoshi Kon and is based on his appearance. Mm-hmm. And the shorter one is similar based on the author of the novel. Which I thought was a very cute detail. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Um, and there was, what was it? What was I saying? Uh, there was some detail, uh, th- oh, this is less about women, um, where th- there's an undertone of certain characters in this story having uh, gay relationships mm-hmm. and how in the novels it was a bit more abusive, whereas in this one the uh, the homosexual undertones is a bit more matter-of-fact and the actual, you know, relationships going on there are a bit more front and centre, like, you know, this guy who wants power is manipulating this guy, mm-hmm. this guy used sex to manipulate this guy. Mm. Um, it's it's not too obvious, and maybe some people didn't catch it, but that's fair enough. But I remember there was a point that Satoshi Kon did want to make that a bit more sensitive and more uh, acceptable to the time that the film was made. So I guess you could uh, see Satoshi Kon wanting to have a bit more progressive values. And we even talked about it in... Um, Tokyo Godfathers, how, you know, Japan hadn't and probably still hasn't quite worked out the whole trans issue, you know, <laughs> yes. the terminology, you know, are they men, are they women? Uh, are they gay? Are they gay? <laughs> are they not? Uh, when they when the translation uses the word fags, is it meant to be derogatory or is it meant to be more about that Okama word they had, which mm. covers, a, you know, a huge spectrum of uh, trans identity? Yes. Um you do get a sense that, yeah, he is trying – well, he, he he does have progressive values and does want to, you know, show representation a bit more of a sensitive light, yeah. whether it works or not. I was going to say that because uh, uh, when, it, when I said pervy earlier – I meant that in as a general sense. Oh, yeah, like, it, it wasn't uh, for sexual gratification. No, this was, but person. no, I think it's yeah. very important because there is a stigma when it comes to adult Japanese animation. We've had it here where we did uh, Arutsuki Doji, which is a hentai. And let us not- and does And it's just one of the worst things I've ever watched in my life. And it's just horrid and vile and just all of this. And let us not forget- the episode before Tokyo Godfathers, when I said it was an anime film, you did immediately say, like, oh, is it going to be a hentai? Yeah, and is it going to be perverted? And yeah. I think there is a stigma from lots of people who don't understand that you can not be that. And I think that's what I've really come to appreciate from this film uh, and his other ones is he was telling stories about the violation and brutalization of women and still being able to use uh, nudity in them, but I didn't get the sense that this was a perverted way of getting it in there. It reminds me, oddly enough, yeah, that's how I'm looking at it, where I'm really respecting now that somebody in this industry that, for me, a Westerner, will often scoff at. Like, when we did Wolf Children as well, I also was just like, oh, God, is Bartek showing me some weird, pervy, furry movie? (laughs) And that's... 
because there, you agree, you've seen a lot and you know a lot. There is a, a general conception of or misconception of Japanese entertainment, specifically adult animated ones of there's this perv factor there and mm-hmm. although yes they're showing nudity here and it's in, done in this way and there's animated nipples and so on and so forth and there's sexual violence here or yeah <laughs> dreamy sexual violence and all of that there's a point rather than just it, there, there's a point to it there's a commentary there's something to be explored in perfect blue and there's something to be explored in millennium actress and this and so on and so forth of when it comes to the male gaze and how the uh, industry of entertainment in these movies treat women and so on and so forth it isn't just urutsuki doji or others where it's just like the filmmakers are just perverts and they don't care that the women are treated like meat or that they're actually underage school children or any of that kind of shit that definitely puts a stain on this side of entertainment for people like me who <laughs> there is that level of I'm not going to watch Japanese shit that's all weird <laughs> and perfect well there was because I'm a I'm a good Christian boy no you know <laughs> in, it, well there was that one uh, shot in the the final parade in the city where it's like the girls wearing the middle school uniforms and the mm. men with the phones like looking under their skirts yeah 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 yes yes mm. but that was also done in a very specific calling yeah. something out way yeah, yeah, that, yeah and that was obviously directly addressing that kind of thing where it's like mm-hmm. oh yeah the, the people are obsessed with panty shots they are they are um but yeah i really loved paprika i really did it's again not my favorite of his films but mm. i'm i'm going to be excited to watch the uh, perfect blue millennium actress and this one back to back at some point that would mm. be a great yeah. when i say great movie night i mean it would be a very weird and depressing movie night yeah. i still have to re-watch millennium actress so yeah, yeah. i've yeah. seen the other films twice now yeah and, that well, and again with millennium actress that one's more when it comes to the commentary on women it's more the industry and men and just general just ugh, mm-hmm. rather than violent in this fashion here or in perfect blue but um uh, yeah, I I don't know um, where else to go from here because I, I I I when it comes to breaking down all the dream stuff, there's many things that we can go with there. But for me, what I got out of it was I really love the cop side of the story, his own um, understanding of himself. The psychiatry stuff worked for him, where he found the root cause of his problem, and now he can be free of it, and he can go on, and now he can be satisfied with he, who he is. That he is no longer the man who didn't make a film. Hmm. That's that's irrelevant now. He is the man who's living out the film itself, which I thought was a wonderful thing. And yeah. and then obviously, I don't know, like the guy who's got like in a wheelchair and he wants mad and he's mad with power all of that stuff didn't really i didn't really care about that and i don't think the film cared that much either it just <laughs> kind of comes in at the end and you know it's just it's just a thing that happens to me and the the yeah and all of the weird dreamy stuff it was great for set pieces of course but there they were recurring images throughout the movie that really got mm. you thinking and feeling and and there, there is a sense also that you can uh, link some of those recurring images in the dreams to the dreamers, because they mention like that the dreams are merging. So you got like the mm-hmm. film elements from Konakawa the cop. Yep. You got all like the dolls and stuff from uh, Himuro, the mm-hmm. the guy that falls off the Ferris wheel. Yeah. Um, and probably a lot more of those colorful things from not just the 
I forget his Shimmer, I think, the short guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one other dreamer. Oh, the, the fat guy, Tokyo. Yeah. yeah. Like all these little elements, you know, merging together. All the people who have used this device, you know, connect to the dream world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see just all these ideas that come from their heads together. Yeah, I really like there's that section of the movie where... Uh, where Paprik is telling basically herself that she's a coward and mm. just go off with the loser fat guy and I'm going to go off and be a hero and then immediately fails and <laughs> is like, what should we do now? Run, and I think. Oh, I like that idea. And then <laughs> she merges inside the robot with herself and, and him and they become a whole person again. Oh, I, I I read this in the trivia, and I wrote this in my notes before I saw it in the trivia. Mm-hmm. When Paprika's flying around, she's flying around in the dream, and she's got this certain aesthetic. They say in the trivia, I'm pretty sure it's like, oh, this looks reminiscent to Dragon Balls. Oh, yeah, that's the Journey to the West character. Yes, and but then I was like, oh, it reminds me more of, of Monkey, which is a, a Chinese... I do believe Chinese or Japanese folk thing uh, born on an uh, born from an egg on a mountaintop monkey, uh, and it said that in the trivia too. It's like oh, it could be this as well, and it was just such a super specific thing that again, why is that there? I don't know. Some commentary there, but uh, it was just a neat detail that me. I'm just like, oh, that reminds me of this, and then I read the mm. trivia. It's like you're right, Ryan. It should remind you of this yeah, because yeah, it yeah. may be referencing this. Yeah, it's referencing Journey to the West. I'm pretty sure. Yes, yeah. and that's the thing that like Dragon Ball was originally based on. Mm-hmm. So that character, if you're like, oh, there's like Goku stuff there. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's the Japanese name for that character, Sun Wukong, Son mm. Goku. There you go. But uh, I love the music. As well, I think this is oh, my yeah. favorite music in any of his movies. I did not know this until I read the trio that this was one of the first films to use Vocaloid technology mm-hmm. in the soundtrack. So, like all the electronica vocals that you hear in like the opening credits and the parade. I don't know about the parade, but definitely the opening credits. That was yeah, Vocaloid technology. Yeah, I really liked the music. I thought it was it was marvelous, marvelous, and used really well. Placed in there at the right moments, they knew when to give you that really peppy. Mm. poppy music and also the more ambient and the yeah, I, uh, horror strings and all of I had that a, was really well done. I had a look at some of the uploads of like the music tracks on YouTube and they've got millions of views, so <laughs> testament to the quality. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Because uh, I think I'm pretty good other than like, I think we got to talk about this being his final film and all mm. of that. But uh, yeah. anything about Paprika itself you want to delve into before we wrap this out? Uh, I think we got it. Yeah. Just the thing of him, this being his final film, he was working on another mm-hmm. film. And I think the title of the film that the cop was seeing at the end was sort of similar to the title of that film. Like he was seeing Dream Kids. The film was called, like, The Dream Machine. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was working on it. Then he died, I think, in 2010. Mm-hmm. And from what I recall, it's been a few years since I looked it up, like, other people were trying to finish it off, but eventually they just gave up. It's like, you know, the mind of Satoshi Kon is gone. Yeah, you we can't. can't. We can't finish it. Do you appreciate that or not? When, when say, a big author or big creative force like that, they have a project that's semi-complete, half com- half done or whatever, and... What do you, where do you land on that? Where do you do you think? No, they should just leave it undone, and we just never get to know what it was. Or do you think? Well, do you prefer, where do you land on that in terms of? Or do you think it's all right for another person to come in and finish it off? Because there's 
many famous authors and and filmmakers and that stuff has yeah. happened with. I know that last year the long, long, long running manga series Berserk, the author mm-hmm. of that died, and now that's just unfinished. Yeah. <laughs> um, with me, if there if it is going to be continued, I would want it to be continued by someone who has been working on it alongside the main guy and could mm-hmm. even be you know partially. Uh, credited for the creation of it. If it's yeah. just some other person, then yeah, I don't think. I think it's hard. I think sometimes when you hear, oh, this author or this creative passed away, and they got somebody who's an equal contemporary of their field to finish it off, you go, oh, yeah, that could be good. But there is that level of, I don't know. I'm reading, I'm reading the Dune books at the moment, and mm-hmm. I know that the author of those died before he finished them, and his son took them over. I think a similar thing happened with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, and uh, his son took over them, and his son has made so many books, mm. and saying that no, they were all from my dad's notes. It's like, dude, you've been making books for thirty years off of this. I feel there comes a point where you have to go. I don't think your dad made this many notes. <laughs> uh, yeah, but. Uh, I think that's all I've got for Paprika. Yeah, but ju- just on that point of you saying that this is his final film, I think that it is nice and poignant that he was actually in the film. Yes, because he hadn't, he hadn't done that before, right? No, I don't think so. And also his character, like the first time you hear him speaking, it's to the guy that loves film talking mm. about film, which mm. that was just a really poetic meta touch. And. The film does end with our main, the cop guy going to the cinema and they're all showing his movies. Which yeah. If this, and I don't mean this to be mean spirited, but if this wasn't his last movie, you would roll your eyes on that, at that a little bit going, oh, okay, we get it. Hmm. Your movies, okay. But this is his last movie. And so there's this warmth that goes into your heart going, oh, hmm. it's kind of like this movie saying, remember all the other ones I made? Hmm. Because this will be the, this is the last one. You've, your journey ends here when yeah, it comes well, <laughs> to my films. But so, so I would imagine you'd say then that, like, for the three years of where this film was released, but he hadn't died yet, that was like, yeah. ah, fuck you. Yes, if I saw it, if I saw it in between, then yes, <laughs> I'd have been like, oh come on. It's like if Quentin Tarantino <laughs> put in his movie <laughs> a movie plexus that's playing nothing but Tarantino movies. It's like <laughs> shut up. But no, it's fine here. Uh, okay, I recommend Paprika. Of course. You recommend it? Yes, I do. Where would you start with his filmography? What's your recommendation? Would you start here? Would you start with Tokyo? Hmm. What, what would you do? Because... That's a, that's a good question. Because um, we both watched all his stuff out of order. We Well, mm-hmm. I guess we both started on Tokyo Godfathers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started with Tokyo Godfathers, then a few years later, uh, Paranoia Agent, and then the rest of the films chronologically. I mean, if you're aware of him, you may as well start and just go through them chronologically. Maybe you mm. can save Paranoia Agent for the end, since, you know, you might want to watch just the movies first. Yeah. Which is completely fine. Um, but I, I'm i pretty happy to say either, you know, Perfect Blue or Tokyo Godfather is a good place to start. Especially mm. if you are walking into it thinking more along the lines of like, oh, I'd like to see some more abstract stuff. Maybe do start with Tokyo Godfather since that is the most straightforward. Yeah, I would say. Mm, yeah, I I'm not too sure. I think you start with Perfect Blue. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I like Tokyo Godfathers, but it didn't make me super excited to see his other movies. Mm. Perfect Blue 
did. Yeah. Generally, uh, yeah, chronological is my uh, way to go. I don't know. I would just go Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, and this uh, in that chunk, and then mm-hmm. Tokyo Godfathers, and I can't speak for Paranoia Agent, but those three really feel of a piece to me. Mm. Uh, and Tokyo Godfathers feels like a little fun thing that he did. I don't know. It's very odd to me. I have to revisit that movie at some point as well for Christmas. Yeah. Well, that's what we... I think that's what we did. Uh, yes. Uh, one day I'll recommend a Christmas movie that's weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've got a recommendation to make for next episode, if you're okay to hear that. That's really good because it is actually your turn. I do have a pick and I'm doing something different. Because this is a thing I want to talk about, but I don't know what what other podcast show we have that fits the format of this. Mm-hmm. I want to do a short film. And when I say short film, I mean it's like forty minutes long. Oh, that I think that technically counts as feature. I, I, I don't know, uh, but, but this this is also well. I accept it. It's a f- film. It's three films strung together called. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Oh, I've heard of it. Made by everyone's favourite entertainer in Hollywood, Joss Whedon. <laughs> uh, it was originally a, a, an internet series that was released in three chunks. I mm-hmm. feel like talking about it. I have thoughts. I want to revisit it and see how I feel and then see if those thoughts line up. And I'm pretty sure you haven't seen it. I have not. It's a musical. So is it like combined for yes. minutes? Yep. Yes. And you can I'm pretty sure you can find it on YouTube altogether, but it was originally mm-hmm. released on the internet during the writers strike mm-hmm. back in 2008, I want to believe I want to say. Uh Neil Patrick Harris, all of that. It's uh it's an interesting little project and I want to give it a discussion. I <laughs> I go, it's not really a film in the way that we do them. It wasn't theatrically released. It's not, you know, the normal length. But at the same time, it doesn't match any other format we do here on our show. So I just go, ah, mm. pictures power. I'm breaking rules. I'm a maverick. <sighs> but I feel like we're going to have some stuff to talk about with it. Next um, week, Spin Polish becomes a Hack Fraud podcast. Yeah, Hack Fraud podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We remember it so you don't have to. So, uh, <laughs> Ooh, Lampshade. No, no, that's a shot taken. Uh, you know who you are, Doug. Um, so that is that. Bartek, where, where can people find us? You can find me in your dreams. But in real life, you can find us at, I almost said this at the beginning of the episode, spitandpolished at gmail.com is our email if you want to contact us directly. But if you want to find us just by using the keyboard, you can go onto internet browser of your choice, look up Spit and Polish. You might find our Facebook page, Spit and Polish Presents. You might find our Twitter, also called Spit and Polish Presents. Uh, remember the presents, otherwise you'll get shoe shining stuff. Mm. Um, and we upload our episodes to a bunch of different podcasts. All of the ones. All of them. Even YouTube. Uh, we do it there as well in case people like listening to podcasts on that browser. People do. I don't know why, but they do. Yep. Uh, yeah. Let us know if there are any movies you want to recommend to us. Hit us up on the email or social medias. We'll add it to the list. Yep. Because after me, it'll be another listening people's selection. It'll be another listening people's choice. And uh, our list is a decent size at the moment, but it's always good to get some more on there because who knows? Yep. We may want to do yours straight away uh, or two years later. It's really up to us. Yeah. The, the thing at the very top of the list is really waiting, whereas the really thing we just did waiting. was barely on there for a week. But, but, but <laughs> Let's not let's not unsell them on giving us suggestions, <laughs> please, please. Uh, Bartek, pleasure as usual. Uh, yes. I'll see you next time on the pod to talk about another thing. I like thing.
<laughs> this film was also a thing. We didn't watch The Thing by John Carpenter. Oh, I've seen half of it. Really? Yeah. Only half? Yeah. Which half? First half. Why did it why did it spook you? No, I fell asleep. <laughs> it was a movie <laughs> it was a movie night, the conditions weren't perfect, so it wasn't the best. You, but you didn't see the spider head? I don't know. That means no. 